Hello, and welcome to episode number 142 of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who's held title positions in Germany and his native Switzerland, but is probably better known now as being one of the foremost teachers of conducting in the world today. His pupils include Eduardo Strausser and Kerem Hassan, both of which I've interviewed for this podcast, and Mirga Grajinita Tilla, until recently the music director of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. It's a great pleasure to welcome Johannes Schleffli. Johannes, it is wonderful to finally meet you uh, virtually online today and to speak with you. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, I'm busy and I'm fine. That's all we can ask for, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, uh, as my listeners know, I always go right back to the beginning and find out if you came from a musical family or whether your musicality just came out of the blue and what your earliest experiences with learning instruments were. Yes, so my father was not a musician, even my mother, but my father, he was a, how do you say in English, um, father, a priest. Okay. Um, but he played really quite well the piano and what was very uh, inspiring for me sometimes he just sat at the piano and improvised in a kind of classic romantic style and uh, we were four children and it was kind of normal in our family that we learned an instrument so I went uh, the kind of normal way you know with the, the recorder in the school and then piano lessons and then when I was about eight I really got interested in, in classical music. We had a concert with a, a oboe player in our church. And I was so fascinated by this personality, basically, that from then on, I wanted to play the oboe. Mm. And that's what I did. Later, I found out it's not the perfect instrument for me. Before that, I always said I wanted to play the cello, and that would have been a better choice, I think, because, uh, you know, where physically I'm, I was never really, really good. Mm. So, um, but that's how, how it started. And then I, I love to play and sing in choirs, play in the school orchestra. I did my normal, uh, you know, school, uh, high school, or what is in English, well, up to, to the age of 20, what you do. And and then instead of going to college, I went to study music. That's the, ba the Basel Music Academy, is that correct? Yes, yes. So yeah. that was kind of a normal way of, of, of coming closer to music as a, a child from a kind of well-established middle-class family. <laughs> um, in German, we say Bildungsbürgertum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I'm not, I'm not sure whether I've asked this question for quite a while now, and I'm going to jump straight into the fact that we're conductors. Um, I, you know, I look on enviously at people who studied wind and brass instruments and because, you know, as a string player, which I was, I was a professional for 22 years, there isn't much about string playing I don't know. But there's loads about the oboe and the bassoon and the clarinet. I, you know, I wonder whether I can flip that coin to you and ask you, you know, do you, do you wish you'd... you'd taking up a string instrument did you in fact once you started taking up conducting have a you know have some preliminary lessons to try and find out what string playing was all about I mean if you could yeah. go back do you think the cello would have been a better option now you know as a conductor not necessarily I mean <clears throat> I had a few cello lessons actually and, and, mm. and a little bit but it was really very 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 basic but um from my point of view as a conductor now is uh to with the strings, we it's physically visible complete mm. what you do. You know how many hairs you use, how much on the fingerboard, how much not with, with the physicality of of the bow and bow speed and and all this. It's all um, um, yeah. You, there's no secret. You can see everything. Yes. So, you can, I feel, I, I do bowings and stuff. I feel I could develop a, a real empathy for how it would be if I would play it. Mm. I think for for um, wind playing, it's a little bit more difficult to really uh, activate the uh, inner empathy for how does that feel when you take the breath and how different it is to take a breath for a longer phrase 
and so on, and then how it is to to not uh, destroy a phrase, but take short breath in between all that. And I'm somehow glad I I have this in my in my bones. And for the strings, I try to learn as much as I can by observing, and I'm I'm fine with it. <laughs> what you say is very true, actually. Um, it all of the visual clues are there for to watch and see a string player. Whereas you know, with things like articulation, tonguing, all of that is hidden. It's all within the mouth, and the, and and even behind a mouthpiece of a brass instrument, it's still all hidden away. Um, yeah. And, and, the, and yeah, that makes it more difficult. Yeah, yeah. And the whole physicality of, of how you feel in your body, what what kind of posture as a as a wind player you like that your conductor has that makes you feel ready to to go and and, and all this. Mm. I think, but but on the other hand, I think that there are. I had students, string players, who became very good conductors, and I think it, it also can work quite well the other way around it's just a question of uh, the openness and and the the uh, ca capacity of, of really have empathy with uh, the phys physical aspects also of playing other instruments you don't really play mm. but being able to visualize how it must feel and as as long as as you do that i, I think uh, i basically believe as a conductor this is a, a very kind of important part this um, empathy in a, a really wide sense of course empathy also for 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 the role within the orchestra sound or for whatever but also for how you feel physically doing that yes that's very 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 true well we're going to come on to your teaching soon soon enough but uh, at this point where let's go back to the Basel Music Academy you're studying the oboe you're studying music how did the C word conducting first come into your life? Um, what made you suddenly think, do you know what? I think that's something I want to attempt. Yeah, actually the conducting came more like a, um, by accident, so to to speak. I, I actually wanted to go on studying the oboe. I, I did studies, I finished, um, was really good. And then I went to, to I, I was, you know, like a very green person, uh, wanted to go to the, the mountains and, and I was helping building up a music school in, in, in the mountains. And, and I, I went to, to the villages and I taught the children the, the recorder, I, I, I let the the choir of the church we had a little orchestra with uh, three violins one one recorder one flute one clarinet the piano and the cello and i arranged pieces for them and all that so i, I was very much into that for a certain period of time and then i actually decided no i want to go back to the city to the high class musical making and i wanted to study on the oboe but somehow i i got a, a prize, but it was more like a joke. I, I did a kind of competition for conductors and they gave me the prize. And <laughs> there was Mario Venzago who was looking for an assistant. He asked me if I, I would, would do that and he recommended me and, and somehow it started. Mm. So, and, and then um, I had, you know, coming back to the city, I had suddenly work as a conductor, but not work as a oboe player. And um it went on like this, and and then I realized that I'm not a good conductor because I had no training. Yes. Then I went to different master classes and uh, observed many people and tried to learn on my own. And uh, that's somehow how it started. Yeah. Well, Mario Venzago is a name I know. Um, in fact, I was still playing in the orchestra in the CBSO in Birmingham the last time I I saw Mario. Uh, he asked whether somebody would conduct whilst he went out and listened in the rehearsal. And the mm -hmm. concertmaster said, yeah, there's a guy in the seconds, he'll do it. Um, and then we had a good chat afterwards and a, a lovely, lovely man. Um, mm -hmm. Would you consider him, I mean, uh, if you if you do your digging online and, and look look up facts about um, Johannes Schleffli, there are five names that are mentioned as being mentors or people you've studied or gone on courses with or masterclasses. There's Mario, Mario Vinzaga, Eric Schmidt, Lena Bernstein, David Zimmerman, and Bernard Heitink. Do you think Mario was 
the biggest influence uh, or uh, and how did you cope with you know often what we do is we get five different approaches to conducting from five different conductors and how do you collate all of that and form it in your mind yeah i mean you know mario that was really completely at the beginning yeah I, I visited him in his house and then he was showing me how he studies the scores and we were working together and I, to start, I took a completely his approach, how he works into the score and how he works with the orchestra. That's what what's my role model, and that's how I started. And then I was uh, one summer in Tanglewood, where I had the chance to also work with Bernstein and Osawa. And Bernstein was really, uh, I mean, <laughs> I was thinking about it with this question, favorite yesteryear conductor. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernstein is really one, but actually as a human being with passion and love for music communicating to the people. But when I listen to his recordings now, mostly I don't like them so much. <laughs> Funnily enough, I'm going to whisper it, neither do I either. Um, there are certain <laughs> things, you know, certain composers say he should never have gone near. I mean, you know, Mahler, I think they're wonderful, but yeah, don't don't let him near Shostakovich, for God's sake, or Sibelius, frankly. Um, yeah, but but... many things, just just too slow, just too too much on the spot, just not enough. Uh, but but that, yeah. that's, of course, very much a matter of, of point of view, of, of taste. But then um, that was in in that way that was it was just two weeks we were with him there, but mm. that was so impressive. I still have so present many many situations from that. I'm assuming after or during this time when you're going to masterclasses is when you become the co-founder of the Camera Orchestra Basel uh, in yeah. 1984. And you were, you know, you stayed with them 15 years. Um, yeah. Who did you co-found it with? Uh, and why? I mean, obviously, uh, the obvious reason why we form an orchestra is because we want to conduct one. And the easiest way of, of getting yourself lots of work is to find start your own orchestra but what form do you uh, what made you think do you know what it's a good idea Basel needs a chamber orchestra no it was not that way it was um it was with friends of, of the same age from music academy who they already had a young young players orchestra and then uh, they asked me to do it together and at that time in Basel there was still Paul Zacher um, mm who had, uh, let's say, a concert series under the name of Basler Kammer Orchester. But a real chamber orchestra was no more existing. What he did was with people from the symphony orchestra and the radio orchestra, just for his concerts. And uh, of course, what he did for the, the music, the new music with all these commissions is, is fantastic. But uh, a fresh, and it was the time, you know, when, when we had the first recordings by Arno Gour and, and his first books and, and this completely new approach to classical music. And we were all like, yeah, that's the thing. And then, of course, chamber orchestra, small and, and fresh. And mm. So um, we decided to to found this, this orchestra. And first, we were not allowed to call it chamber orchestra, Basel Chamber Orchestra. So we had this name Serenata, mm. <laughs> and then step by step, this orchestra uh, transferred its name. And now just this weekend, we had a masterclass with them, and it's uh, now fantastic, uh, fantastic orchestra. Mm. It uh, now has the name Basel Chamber Orchestra and is really the, the chamber orchestra of Basel. Which is yeah. great that it's still going and it's still thriving. Um, I mean, you're also... Currently, until 2024, I believe the chief conductor of the Collegium Musicum Basel Symphony, which is a, I'm assuming, a bigger orchestra in your yeah, home city. Yeah, it, it, this is a symphony orchestra, but this is a kind of, um, it, it's a, a kind of a project orchestra with professional musicians, many of them doing a lot of teaching music. Mm. And that has also a very interesting and good side. So 
Um, they also had um, things like they called it pre-concerts where young ensembles with kids were playing before the concert and then their parents and them, they came also to the real concert and um, we went to schools with uh, projects and I think good things, interesting things, but it was it's not a, a permanent professional orchestra. So it's it also um, limited in, in the possibilities what you can do. You just mentioned teaching and we're going to go there now because it's the thing that you're probably, I suppose, most famous for outside of Switzerland, you know, conducting in Basel and Bern and places right. in Mannheim where you've also had a relationship with an orchestra for six years in Mannheim in Germany. But teaching is where you're, you know, uh, you're most well known. Yeah. I, I have a theory here um, in the fact that I think it sounds like you never really, you said you never had any formal training. You got a lot from Mario Vinzaga early on, but you were collating ideas all of the time from people you studied masterclasses with, courses with. And then the best way of learning at all, which is going out there and doing it and yeah. screwing up and and then learning what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and watching other people doing it. Yeah. Why did you start teaching? And do you think that having almost taught yourself, it's helped you with, with uh, at the start of when you started teaching? Yes, I think very much so. I mean... The, the teaching also came a little bit by accident in, in the way that uh, it was in the 90s when I decided I need more um, more feedback and I did uh, summer courses, summer workshops. And there they asked me for the next summer, do you want to be our assistant? And then somehow I got into teaching in, the, in these summer courses. And then I also studied at the university. And then when they created this conducting class in Zurich, they asked me to, to be the professor. So it, it also came kind of by itself. And then um, I think my thing about teaching is that, uh, but I have to say I had to learn this by many years and by many mistakes <clears throat> that I'm convinced that the best way of teaching conducting is to have no school of mm. conduct. I have no uh, certain style and whenever people said that oh your students look very different from each other i always took this as a big compliment that's what i want to keep that um it, it, it's really about yeah about helping them as a coach I, I would rather say coach than teacher helping them to go that way what i went alone with myself to go that way but maybe a little bit quicker because i can be a good coach and make them aware of things that help them to advance quicker to their the, the best version of themselves. Well, I, I think it's very true. I mean, I know, speaking to Mark Heron, who has that role of the Royal Northern mm -hmm. College of Music, he is another one who, he's not trying to force somebody's body into doing things that they don't want to do. He's not trying to change their personality, uh, the way they speak or the way they their gesture um it's about you know making the person that stands in front of them for the first time a better conductor by enabling by helping by cajoling by maybe just yes. just gently pushing them in a certain direction wouldn't you say yeah absolutely uh, and i mean i know that uh i've interviewed two i went back through my episode list and interviewed two of your former students kerim hassan and eduardo strausser and of course i did also work closely um, as associate conductor in Birmingham with another one of your students, Mirga Grajanita Tila. And I think when it comes to male and female conductors, you know, that's obviously a hot topic at the moment, but to let them be themselves is the most important thing, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what tips can you give to a young conductor who is starting out about the best way of finding out how to be themselves? Other than the obvious, which is not copying Carlos Kleiber videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is a very big, big question. There are quite a few ingredients. And then one ingredient certainly is to study the scores of the pieces they are dealing with. 
in a in a way and with patience and 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 with depth that um, I, I tend to call it uh, you have to study the the piece as long until you feel it speaking from the inside out and yeah. you have to study it so well that then when you go to listen to to different recordings because i think that's one thing you should do because it's it's inspiring but that then it's for you very clear that oh this i don't like this i like this I, no no that cannot be and so on so establishing a kind of strong clear inner voice about how what does this piece say and how should it sound um, and then um, be be honest with that but then of course the next step is, is to learn uh, conducting is is not just a, a proactive uh, profession it's very much also a reactive pro profession so the ability to find a good balance between giving inspiring and uh, really be humble and listen to what you get as an offer from from orchestras and find a way of conversation sometimes absolutely without words just within playing where you find your common ground and where you find your common interpretation and that's of, of course a tricky field because on one hand it, it could meet it could mean that someone a young conductor thinks he she has her view but the orchestra sounds great so let's do it like that that's could with a good orchestra could be very easy but on the other hand that's not what an orchestra needs on on, on long term orchestra needs a real uh, partnership needs a, a real strong uh, founding of of the conductor even if if there are um, um, how do you say in English if if, if there are um, there are conflicts and, and, mm. and issues or, or fields of, of conflict, but that this has to be. And and then on the other hand, young conductors who just uh, are stubborn with a. <laughs> I think <laughs> at this this moment where when someone was with a very clever idea and just didn't want to give up and tried it and it was kind of obvious that it will not sound good here and now and with this orchestra this will not sound good and uh, yeah. experience you and then <laughs> I think sometimes he was always very gentle with the young conductor he, he would come up as he did slowly and put a hand on the shoulder and say. Uh, don't you think that's now maybe an idea fix? <laughs> and, uh, try try it without the idea fix. Just be in the moment, and and then and I mean that's uh, to find the right balance between this. This is the big thing I think for the young conductors to to develop into something where they have this balance, where they have their really real clear personality. On one hand, and on the other hand, are really cooperative workers, primus inter pares, with an orchestra, and and give the orchestra the space to to develop. And that's that's the thing that's all I also find very interesting as a as a coach. Absolutely, um... that and and to give advice within that that balance. The minute you said the word react earlier on, I grinned uh, widely and even the listener might have heard me go, ah, gently, because to me that is that is so much part of what a good conductor does. And I'm talking to somebody who has had a foot in both camps. I was an orchestral musician and now I am a, a conductor. To have the ability to react, it's not only, as you've just been talking about then, to react to when an idea you have isn't going to work with that orchestra that week this time, you know, to react to that and think, okay, there are other battles I might want to try. Let's, you mm -hmm. know, I can leave that one alone. But it's also, and I, I'm pretty convinced that, that you will agree with me on this, it's also the, the ability to react to when things are, are going wrong or when you need to, you know, stop being 
putting you know your positive gestures forward to the orchestra and then suddenly you're needed to be a helper you need to react quickly to sort something out in the orchestra and you don't just stick to your and my inverted commas are coming out your dance routine that you've learned about you know i think i should conduct this bar like this you have mm -hmm. to suddenly jettison that and yeah. react to the problem with the orchestra don't you yeah yeah Absolutely. Um, when I was with a colleague and we had for, for a masterclass, we had to, to, to um, sort out 24, uh, 240 videotapes. And he asked me, um, what are you looking for when you have to go through videotapes? And then I came up with, with that metaphor. I, I still like that. I, I would like to, to have the feeling that I see um, like a, a tripod. Leg number one of the tripod is be the music. That's mm -hmm. the proactive part that have a clear uh, idea and radiate that idea so strongly that the orchestra somehow cannot um, get uh, apart from that. Mm. But on the other hand, as uh, Panula often said, uh, always help, never disturb. Mm which is very much the opposite of it, which seems to be like, oh, okay, I just stand there and, and give the, the pause and then they play and mostly I don't disturb because they do well and here I help and there I help. Um, but uh, this kind of um, being aware who needs my help, when, why, in what way, like this, I come back to the idea that I think there must be also a physical empathy for the players. Yes. So that's in, in the second, all, all that is in the second leg. Don't, don't disturb, but help. Mm. And then the third leg to, to make the balance of the tripod would be the communication field that, that the young conductors try to conduct. I believe also as much as possible by memory, really knowing the score, to be really in contact with the people one of my colleagues always said, you don't conduct Tchaikovsky, you conduct the people playing Tchaikovsky. And having this aspect really awake all the time by having a really open field of communication where you realize much quicker and much stronger, now you need to really be the leader and now you really need to get out of the way and now you really need to help that or this. And... Um, I think that there is really the really uh, interesting part of, of teaching conducting, not uh, all the preparations. Also very interesting, of course, the, the discussion about what does that piece mean? Why should it be like this and not like that? And, and so on and so forth. But then, and then having a, a clear idea and a clear version, but then the story starts when the first sound comes back. And then it's about this moment where your idea meets in your hands, so to speak, the response from the orchestra and the, or the orchestra's idea. Mm. And how do they match? How do they interact? What is the chemistry? And what needs to be done now? And there is the reaction moment, which I think is the real interesting and fascinating moment in conducting and where I'm very much interested in. And for the non-musical, and what, what I mean by this, dear listener, is for those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast because you want to know what conducting is about, but you don't play an orchestra an instrument, or you don't even play an instrument, you don't even sing, but you just, you're fascinated. Johannes has just, in a nutshell, with that wonderful metaphor, talked about what we have to do as a conductor, the tripod metaphor. And when it means that when you come to teach conducting, which we both do, to uh, Johannes to a much greater extent than I, what it means is that no day can be the same because you get you have it, you know, conductor A standing in front of orchestra A, conducting, let's say, Brahms's first symphony. The orchestra are going to react differently to that student as they're going to react to conductor B and conductor C. And the problems that each conductor either uh, causes or doesn't fix or, you know, by the tempos they choose or their gesture, it's a it's infinite the amount of possible possibilities that as a teacher you're going to stand in front of and so you you know you're always trying to find ways of helping them to help the orchestra but also sometimes to, as you said gently say uh, suggest that maybe they're they're interfering too much when they should be you know 
My analogy I always use is about the fact that we're just we're sitting on the back of a horse, the orchestra being the horse, and mm-hmm. there are certain times you know when to help the 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 horse jump over the fence or exactly. go round a tree. There are also times when the horse is likely to see a rabbit, which is the random event, and you have to hold then hold the reins and stop them running after the rabbit. That's the random event. That, that's that's yeah. very nice that you mentioned this metaphor because I use it also a lot. Oh wow! Oh right. I think, yeah. But I I heard it from Hiding. I have to say, yeah. it didn't come to 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 my mind. But uh, my partner, she is a rider, yeah. and. Uh, I also sometimes observe, she has a, a very interesting teacher, observe the the teaching, the, the lessons this teacher gives to the uh, horse riders. Mm. There are so many similarities because it's exactly what you say, that the horse does it all. The orchestra yeah. does And the rider has to, has to find a way to be one with the horse, but the horse does it. Mm. We don't do it. And... Okay. Horses, I, unlike motorbikes I, and cars, horses have their own brains and their own personalities. That's the yeah, point. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I, I like this metaphor a lot. It's very nice that you brought this up. Good, I'm glad. What you won't know is that there is an 11th question, which is possibly something you do when you teach in your class and it's about score study and also score marking so yeah. when you uh, encourage it well let's say when you're learning a score yourself next time you're doing a guest conducting engagement how do you go about learning a score do you start with the overall picture and then zoom in and zero in on details are you a sort of person who goes from the first page to the last one conductor earlier on in these episodes suggested it's a good idea to learn the first page and the last page and then work your way in like this, which I've <laughs> never tried because uh, I think it's crazy. Um, and the other thing for the geeks and of there are a lot of geeks who listen to this, this podcast, are you a marker upper? Do you use red, blue and black, you know, hieroglyphics, marker pens, or are you just somebody who keeps your score clean? How do you go about learning? a score and because you are an eminent teacher do you teach that to your students or do you just let them find their own way okay that, that are many questions in one there are it's it's <laughs> a sort of 11 question 11 to 15 but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for me personally yes i use blue red and green and pencil mm. and yes i write things down one thing i care a lot for is the um uh, uh, how do you say in english the bar group analysis yes the phrasing and the yeah. i really mark that you know with either um, a line or just a how do you say in english just a uh, not a full line just a, a dotted line yeah dotted line and then um, to to understand the piece uh, fully in in its construction from the big picture into the really small picture and understand the uh, Lego bricks that the composer uses and how he uses them in in a different way, what he does with them in, in the development section, blah, blah, blah. All this I find really very important to to deal a lot with that and, and try to understand understand that deeply. When you ask how to go into it, so first uh, I want to have a, an overview. And nowadays we, we have uh, all these possibilities. So I, I take a score and a, a recording from a conductor. I think that might be decent. And I listen to it with the score because I'm not a good piano player. So I have an impression. And then I go with the piano and, and with my brain that's hopefully working decently, <laughs> I go through it. Um, but from there on, I mean, there I I think I get the, the, the big picture. And also you, you can quickly read about, about the piece and then you get an idea about uh, exposition and stuff like that. And then I go through it carefully one time to understand all the um, the bar groups and all the harmonies 
to to scan the piece like in in both dimensions mm. to understand what's going on and then i i start to to try to uh, imagine it in physicality in orchestra so who will need me where in what way mm. then a very important question and then if we go back now to the colors um i i personally try to use not much and to reduce for example i use red for instruments and cues mm. so i try to reduce it to to the really important things um, and sometimes that can be a second clarinet coming coming in in a canon in, in in the middle of a bar group where you as where i I visualize as a musician, it can be hard to find this entrance, but it's not something that you would uh, you you would hear immediately from the outside. So yes. it, it can. So it's really based on the question: um, who might need me where, and I want to make my brain aware. So I mark this red mm. example or blue is more like the organizing stuff of of, of dynamics and of. of meter changes and stuff like that but also in a way a phrase that is very naturally um growing and diminishing i don't have to write anything it's it's very natural but when i realize and now then the second time this phrase the crescendo starts later and the the the, the how do you say that the gravitation point is is moved to later and then the diminuent is very quick for example and that's then a thing i visualize this the orchestra has to be reminded now we don't start the crescendo so then i write something this crescendo starts here mm. this diminuendo is very very huge so i have to really hush them uh, or um, radiate to them we need to drop now really quickly so in that way that would be my recommendation but now the third part of the question what do i ask my students to do i i leave them to do their own thing but we discuss it and we discuss the advantages and disadvantages and i'm always very impressed when i see students who write almost nothing and i realize but they really know mm. I think that's fantastic. I would love I could do it, but my brain is just not so good. I cannot do it. So I, I need something. And I see others, they kind of need to have touched physically with some color each each element of the score. And then it's full of colors. And, and I think that it would be terrible for me. But when I realize with some uh, students uh, and we talk about and then she or he tries and and finally, the best uh, conducting results always after he or she has done this through the whole score. And then, I, okay, if, if you find out this is the thing you need, obviously, then do it. Just make sure later in your life uh, you have enough time for this. Mm. Might be some very short nights then, but well. So um, to come back to your question, as a teacher, I, I try to... Um, make the students very much aware of where do they stand with this ability to really memorize on one hand the piece itself in its structure and what it needs in my point of view and on the other hand that's now the two legs of the the, um, the tripod on the other hand who in the orchestra will probably need me in what way when and how much you can um, kind of memorize that and have that in your mind and your brain without doing something or with doing certain things or with doing a lot, that's then finally a personal question, I think. Mm. Mm. But what I would uh, advise to be careful is what I see many times with uh, really beginners that they kind of mark everything they see in the, in the score. Yeah, you don't need you don't need that. You need to highlight, as you've just said, and that's something I do in a different color. It must be said, but those entries where you know it could be quite a tricky one to catch, or 
if somebody hasn't played for a long time, it's worthwhile just noticing. Have they picked their instrument up? Yes, they have. You know, timpanist has sat there for a good five minutes and he hasn't played anything and he's he's still sitting uh, with his chair down below the timpanist. He hasn't risen up yet. So you think, well, you know, you're about to come in. And, and, and as you said, when a phrase is different the second time round, what that'll do is, A, it helps you realise it. But secondly, when as often happens, an orchestral player puts their hand up and says, maestro, it's different this time from the first time. You can immediately say, yes, I know. Uh, and the reason is this, especially things like uh, articulations in Vorjak, Eighth Symphony, the, the articulations are different the second time around. Sometimes it can be because Vorjak was lazy, but other times, it, it, you know, it can be because, uh, yeah. you know, he wanted a different phrasing. And by noticing it, you're already answering the questions when they come at you, which they will do, um, you know, because musicians care and they want to know whether it's what's in front of them is correct or not. Um, yeah. yeah, it's doing all of that homework will help you when it comes to the rehearsals and to be two of the legs of the tripod and to, or, you know, to know when to hold the reins and when to just enjoy the view on the back of the horse, really. I mean, it's very important. As you can imagine, over 140 episodes or so now, I've heard every single way possible of learning and marking up a score. So nothing ever surprises me anymore. But I really like what you do is to basically let them find their own way. You know, I, I don't think I could ever tell people you must use blue for dynamics. You must use red for your hands and arms and tempi, and all, which is what I use. Um, you just let them do their own thing. As long as it's the piece has gone in there, yeah, in in the head, doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, exactly, man. And the, the, it it sh they should find an extent of using markings or not that helps them to free their spirit in the moment when it happens. Yes. But that is what counts and when that means that the person has to write down a lot and then he or she can be free fine are you a young conductor thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the conducting world then my patreon page is there for you i'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and as an ex-orchestral player and i offer you the chance to ask me any question any time of the day for instance, you might like to ask me how to mark up and learn a score, as we've just been discussing. When you subscribe, you will gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles, and much, much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you'll gain a 10% discount. And if you're a student, contact me directly and there'll be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Johannes Schleffli. Johannes, it's the 10 questions that the previous 130-odd conductors have all answered, and so must you. And I start with, what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? I love a lot um, nature sound, like uh, birds, you know, hardly audible birds whispering somewhere in the fresh air or at the seashore. The, the um, nature sounds, I, I love a lot. But mainly uh, soft nature sounds. Yeah. But sometimes also a, a thunderstorm. It can also be really nice. What I really hate is the construction work out on the street because when they have these really loud um, machines going on and off and on and off in a completely unpredictable not rhythm, that drives me crazy because I have to listen there. I, um, I cannot cannot listen to anything else, but when will it go on again? When will it disappear again? So this I hate. Mm. Well, you're not oh. alone in that. Um, and nature is probably the most given answer uh, of the sound or noise that people love. But you do also happen to live in a place which is rather beautiful. And within, you know, not so long, you can be, you know, pretty much in a in a beautiful valley or, or halfway up a, a gorgeous alp. Uh, I'm assuming it's something you're very grateful for, for living where you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even where I live now, uh, it's um I, I, I can turn this I don't know if, if we can see 
I can see trees. That's beautiful. And yeah. The, the, you know, the sky is a little bit cut, but it's a calm neighborhood with many trees. So, for example, here also in the morning when I open the door to the balcony and it's fresh air and, and it, it, it can be even here. So mm. this kind of, uh, yeah, there it is. That's the world, the original. <laughs> I'm 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 always very jealous. Yeah, I saw your balcony. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine who um, is one of my subscribers on Patreon, who's becoming a dear friend, Christian. Hi, Christian, who lives in Winterthur. Uh, whenever he talks to me on Zoom and he's sitting outside, I'm always terribly jealous of the fact that you're in Switzerland and you've got, uh, got a balcony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I think... Um... Have a nice breakfast, then go hiking in in the mountains. A nice hike, not too hard, but huh. a little bit tiring. Then maybe go to the sauna and then have a really nice dinner with some heavy red wine. <laughs> good. I like it when people mention food in our, in question three because it means I'm probably going to get a good answer for question ten. So, uh, <laughs> which is always good. I look forward to those. Uh, you mentioned earlier on Leonard Bernstein being a possible favourite conductor of yesteryear. Is he one of your favourite conductors or, or um, of yesteryear? He is. Yeah. Yeah, but from the 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 old ones, and then of course, Haydn uh, is is for me uh, uh, was. We were very lucky to have him every year in the with the Zurich conducting class one one time, and these um, meetings for me were so inspiring. And I saw him conduct quite a few times in real. And uh, yeah, for me, he is one of the really great. You know, this thing what what I I said about uh, having a clear mind, but then meeting the orchestra in his hands, hardly moving when he was old, but it was kind of all meeting there and all the in information passing back and forth. I really loved it. So I think definitely. I, he is on a list of not many conductors I wished I'd played for. Um, him, Carlos Kleiber, probably Abado, but him more than any other. And uh, wouldn't you say... Of course, of course, Kleiber, of course, as well. I mean... How yeah. can you mention Clive? Um, well, everybody else pretty much has mentioned him, so uh, it's it's not a surprise. The question I was going to ask you was, or, or the point I was going to make was, your original two choices are Bernstein and Heiting. You've met them both, and they seem to be almost polar opposites as characters, as people. One was very, you know, walked in the room and the world stopped, and, and he made sure everybody knew he was there. You know, very, mm -hmm. you know outgoing personality whereas Hightink you know I've watched documentaries about him with him in it and he just seems a very humble quiet man but Absolutely. music emanated from both of them in two spectacularly different ways didn't they yeah yeah uh I mean Hightink just seemed to have this inner authority um it, it wasn't he wasn't sort of you know uh ripping his clothes off to get what he wanted hardly at all no no not at all yeah, and and I had a, a, a few moments where I observed also or talked to people playing for him, and also um, experienced when we had a conducting workshop with my orchestra, and at the end he conducted one movement of of, of Bruckner, and what it did to my orchestra, the people I knew very well, it, 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 it that was really a magic that uh, he somehow was doing nothing absorbed all all love and intention for really beautiful music making mm. no idea how this worked but it, it was for me it was very impressive and inspiring and and bernstein as i said not when i listen to, to the, <laughs> the recordings now um many things i think that that should not be done like that but what I remember from him as as a personality and, and with this, uh, also when you see the documentaries, when he talks about music, it's fantastic mm. how he comes to the point and how rich this is. It, uh, yeah. And, and you're right, it, it, it's, it's polar personalities and maybe that, that also says something about myself. 
<laughs> I wonder whether your choices for question five would yeah. be also polar opposites. Who would be your favourite current conductor or conductors? Um, I thought about this. I, certainly Pavo Jervi, whom I got to know now in, in Zurich a, a bit. Um, so fascinating about what he can do uh, technically mm. and, and his fresh approach for, for Beethoven and many things um, uh, about him I really admire and love. And on the other hand, Ivan uh, Fischer. Mm. Another person who, you know, through his orchestra, his own orchestra, much like you did with the camera orchestra in Basel, you know, the, I mean, yeah, he, I've, I really enjoyed watching his masterclasses with the concert cabo. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen them, um, yes. especially the sandwich wrapper metaphor he used about, you know, yeah, there's a lovely moment, dear listener, where he uh, he asks a young con conductor to tell the concert cabo orchestra what they want. The young conductor does this, and he stops the young conductor and says, look, you've told me everything about the sandwich except the sandwich. I've heard what colour the wrapping is, whether it's paper, cellophane, what's on the outside, the sell-by date, but I don't know what flavour the sandwich is. Just tell them what flavour the sandwich is. You know, absolutely brilliant metaphor. And so, again, somebody who obviously really thinks about yeah, conducting. Yeah. Much like Pavo, who I've also seen give masterclasses, and, yeah, they seem to be two very good um teachers and you know mentors yeah um, although uh, i think they are for my awareness they are really different in, in yeah. music but but i i really respect a lot uh ivan fisher's also his courage to to do to do anything you know, the concerts he did in Berlin, you know, with the musicians and the public mixed up and, and he's somewhere in the middle or when he suddenly rearranges the orchestra in a very uh, crazy way, but somehow gets gets this, this freshness of the moment, this uh, now is the moment, now it counts. And somehow, yeah, I feel he gets that. I'm, I'm fascinated by him. Number six, Johannes, is what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I think if, if you put it uh, in... Actually, yes, technically, physically, emotionally, Mahler's Second Symphony. Mm. Because for me, there kind of all this came together. You have this kind of... Uh, you have tricky movements, you have tricky passages to, to put how to put together with the offstage people. And then it's really long. And then emotionally at the end, it's really, really huge. So, um, yeah, I, I think there I really had many tears. And normally I'm quite controlled. Mm. I think for me it was this. Well, maybe when I come to conduct Marla 2 one day, I can ring you up and ask you how you conduct the bit with the flute and the piccolo and the offstage horns in the beginning of the last yeah. movement. <laughs> you know, we did that this summer in, in Gstaad, again, in, in the academy, and Jörg von Sweden is now there, and and then he was doing it in the concert, and, and the fifth movement we didn't, uh, he did later for the concert, and I tried to remember how did I do that, and I didn't remember, and he, his score was really full of, 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 of signs. He had a complete uh, clear way of, of leading all the, this kind of free thing stuff he had all in his hands. But um, I think uh, there should be another possibility. There should be some, some freedom, but still coordination. But I don't remember how I did. <laughs> I know um, I've conducted it once because I did it in a rehearsal for Andres Nelson's in Dortmund, I believe. And I'm, I know I did it, but I can't remember how I did it. I'm, you know, maybe I just pointed mm -hmm. at the right person at the right time. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 on my schedule again in in one and a half years, and I have to to think about it again. Mm. <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Um, some book, or I mean, the the reader with some books on it. Yeah, a Kindle or something similar, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I had an answer recently where somebody said uh, two books, 
neither of which I ever read. <laughs> Basically saying, I take them with me in case I do have empty periods, but I end, often end up just going for a meal or going out for a drink with somebody and I never read them. Uh, or fall asleep on the plane and then it, nothing, you know, I take them with me and I never read them. But you do read. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's the most popular answer, I would say, probably now. Uh, can be, yeah. But it's my answer. I have no other. <laughs> That's fair enough. Number eight, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Um, so this is fantasy. Um, it would be very nice if you would have uh, flexibility in number of rehearsals. Mm. If you would start and see what it needs and do what it needs and skip what it doesn't need, and this would be normal. That would be very nice. I Wouldn't find it, it? all always a, a, a kind of, of pressure to do you have this certain amount of, of rehearsals three rehearsals or whatever and then to put it into it and you think will it fit will it not fit that would be nice and and what also makes so again dear listener if you're not a musician you know we accept an engagement with orchestra abc and they tell you that you've got two days of rehearsal, five hours each day, and then there's a dress rehearsal of three hours and then the concert. Or you could go to Germany, it could be four days of rehearsal, slightly less amount during the day, but you have a set amount of time. Um, what makes it worse, and I've just spent the morning doing this for two or three different orchestras, which is like, could we have a rehearsal order, please? And so yep. actually, in one case this morning, I've left the last day blank because I've basically said, I don't know what I'm going to rehearse on the last day until I've rehearsed the two days beforehand. And then I'll find out whether whether certain pieces need more or less rehearsal. But yeah, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be nice to just have, you know, the, uh, just uh, I'm going to rehearse until we're ready. But of course, that can never happen. Um, so we're always squashed into a box of how much rehearsal time we've got. Um okay. And 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 they want to know, you know, and rightly so, because, you know, the harp is only in one of the three pieces. They quite like to know whether you're going to rehearse it in the morning or the afternoon. Um, yeah, that, that's why we said that that's fantasy. We understand why we have to do it. Yeah. And we understand that it has to be like this, but it's sometimes not nice. No, it makes things tricky. Yeah. Number nine, let's see if you go real or fantasy with this one. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have attempted? I I don't really have, a, I mean, I, I can say things like that. There was a time when I was very much interested in psychology and I thought maybe I will study psychology. But then I decided for music. But then what profession would it have been? Um, I don't know. But on the other hand, psychology is very close to what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> you you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you want you want to indulge in a in a professional that has an awful lot of psychology in it, uh, welcome to the world of conducting. Absolutely yeah, true. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. Then true. that's that's not not really an alternative in that way. So um, I don't really know. I don't really have an answer for that. Well, it's been a long time. I mean. I often get, you know, things like psychology as an answer. Also, architect is quite a popular answer. And then I point out that actually, if you look at a symphony as a conductor, you already are sort of being an architect. You're looking at this huge overall picture, but you're also going in and looking at the wiring, you know, and the where the pipes go for the plumbing. You know, you are looking at individual bow, bowings and phrasings and where to breathe. And you are looking from big to small, which is sort of what an architect does. But yeah, it's been a long time since nobody... You know, somebody's been happy with their lot, and that's that's fine, Johannes. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? If the world would end tonight, and then I would certainly go to a restaurant and have a very nice meal with a steak and with some potatoes and some vegetables and a very heavy red wine and then a very nice dessert. Uh, kind of uh, very normal, but I have to say that I try to eat really almost no meat or just once or twice a week maximum, but for not, not because I don't like it, but because of environment. I think and health. 
Um, yeah, but if the world were about to end and you knew it was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no more reason to, to to do this, so I would really go with what I really would like to eat. Yeah. And an excellent answer it is. Uh, it's been a wonderful hour chatting to you, Johannes, especially about what we do as conductors, how you teach, and all aspects of teaching and conducting. I found it fascinating. I know that I, my listeners will as well. So thank you. And I hope one day we can carry on maybe over very heavy red wine and carry on <laughs> chatting in the future. Thank you, Johannes. Yeah, that would be very nice. Thank you very much for having me. And it was really very nice discussion. And I'm so happy that we have the same metaphors about conductors and orchestras. And yeah, let's hope for having a glass of really heavy, fantastic red wine one day. Thank you so much. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a British conductor who, after studying the bassoon in Germany, ended up being a professional player in Berlin for 10 years. Then, in 2012, she decided to move towards conducting and now has a very successful guest conducting career all across the globe. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>